Well, today we're excited to come to another section of Romans chapter 8, which is such an extraordinary chapter in so many ways. Uh, last time we introduced chapter 8, and so we talked about how it's totally unfair to judge your life story by what's happening in the middle. Like, what if we did that with other Bible stories? What if we were talking about Abraham's story ending with his sacrifice of Isaac on the altar and the kill knife unsheathed and ready to go, and that's just the end of the story? It'd be a terrible story. What if we ended Job's story with him in great grief and his wife saying, just curse God and die, and that's the end of the story? That'd be a terrible story. What if we ended Jesus' story with him being in the grave? That'd be a terrible story. You can't judge a life story by what's happening in the middle. And all of the great Bible stories are like that, right? What if we said uh, Jacob's story ends when he's running for his life from his brother who wants to kill him, and then he's just been cheated out of the wife that he worked seven years for? And that's the end of the story. We would hate that story. What about if Israel was just stuck in slavery? No Exodus, no Moses, no burning bush, no nothing. What if it was Samson just dying in foolishness and that was the end of his story? That'd be a terrible story. What if we're talking about David fleeing from his throne while his own son is trying to kill him? Terrible story. All these stories would be terrible. What if we were talking about Jairus' 12-year-old daughter dying, just 12 years old, and that's the end of the story? It'd be a terrible story. But instead, we have the great stories of Scripture. Last week, we reminded you that Romans chapters 3 through 7 are primarily about two big rescues. The first rescue is rescue from the punishment of sin. And from the moment of your conversion, you are rescued from the punishment of sin, death, and hell. That's just great. And the other thing we see in Romans 3 through 7 is that we've been rescued from the strong enticement of temptation. We, we don't have to sin. The, the dictatorship has, has been broken. Uh, and we don't have to sin because the Lord is giving us his power by his indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's just great. And both of those rescues are enormously important. But they are mostly invisible to us. Mostly they're dealing with things of the Spirit that you cannot see. But then chapter 8 comes along and begins to address some things that you can see. Like rescue from the hardships of this life. So you don't even have to go to heaven to experience this rescue. And rescue that our physical bodies, our physical bodies, will one day have. And rescue uh, of the entire physical universe. So these are things talked about in Romans chapter 8. And as we face hardships in this life, it is really, really important, utterly important, and very, very comforting if you'll realize these three things. First of all, that God loves his children now, that he has given us the spirit of adoption. And that's what we talked about last week. Today in yellow, we're going to talk about God's soon arriving remedy for all of this suffering on planet Earth. It's coming for us soon, and that's our topic today. And then next week, we're going to talk about God's help in the meantime. That is the Holy Spirit's silent help with all of our prayer requests. But that's next week. Today, the soon arriving remedy for all this suffering that's all around us. And here's what it sounds like in Romans chapter 8. Verse 18 says, For I count that the sufferings of this present time, those be just the random hardships we don't have any control of, but also 
the sufferings we intentionally go through because we love Jesus. We, we work hard. We give money away. And sometimes there's even mockery and persecution. But I count that the sufferings of this present time are now worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation. So this is the whole creation. You know, the dogs, the horses, the lions. The whole creation, but humanity first and foremost. All right. So the, the earnest expectation of the whole creation waits for the manifestation, the unveiling of the sons of God. Something big is going to be unveiled. And all of creation is waiting for this. In verse 20, for the creation, that is the entire creation, but you all, you know, humanity first and foremost. For the creation was made subject to vanity. Vanity is waste and ruin. So the whole creation was made subject to vanity, not willingly, like not just because God wanted it to all be, you know, subject to waste and ruin, but because of God who has subjected it to waste and ruin in hope. And hope is assurance of a bright future. So God subjected it to waste and ruin, knowing that there's going to be a bright future. In verse 21, because the creation, all of creation, but humanity first and foremost, because the creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, well, us first and foremost, but also, you know, the whole earth, uh, weather patterns, uh, the animal kingdom, the whole creation groans and travails in pain together until now. And not only they, not just those on the outside, but us, we also, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we already have justification. The Lord has given us a contract for forgiveness forever. And we have newness in Christ. We already have the Holy Spirit living inside us. These are the first fruits. The first fruits means, you know, that's the beginning of the harvest. And there's going to be a much bigger harvest coming soon. So not just all the outsiders in creation are groaning, but we also ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. That's the unveiling and the full harvest that's being talked about. We're waiting for the, for the redemption of our body. In verse 24, for we are saved by hope. That is, we know there's a bright future. We are saved by the assurance of a bright future. But hope that is seen is not hope. In other words, you can't believe in a bright future if it's already happened. And hope is always future in its orientation. So it has to be coming and not something that, it's already, that has already happened. So uh, we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen, it, it wouldn't be hope anymore because hope is about the future. For why does or how can a man hope for what he already sees? If it's future, we can hope for it. If it's already, we can't hope for it. It's, it's done. You know, it's, it's something we believe in as past, not hope. Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not yet see, then we with patience wait for it. Well, that's our text. We're going to see three great things here, and these are truly great things. The first thing is that all our sufferings are minuscule compared to the brightness of the future that God has prepared for us. And then we're going to see that our very broken universe, nature, the animal kingdom, and us, our very broken universe, is going to be delivered from brokenness. And then last of all, our very broken bodies are going to be delivered and redeemed. And all of that is right here in Romans chapter 8. 
All right, so again, here's what it sounds like. Verse 18, I count that the sufferings of this present time, the ones that just happen to us randomly and the ones we go through on purpose because we love Jesus, I count that the sufferings of this present time are now worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. No comparison. No comparison at all. And a great cross-reference to this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. It says, Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. So our hardship is light and momentary. And it brings something heavy and forever that's good. And so Paul says, it's not even worthy to be compared. No comparison. So it's like this. This picture is a picture of a ranch in Napa Valley. Now, I think Napa Valley is the prettiest place in the world. Uh, 60 degrees in January, 85 degrees in July, and not much humidity in the summer. It's a beautiful place. Now, what if I told you that actually I have this ranch in Napa Valley? But here's the thing. Uh, you have to give me your car. Now, if you'll give me your car today because I'm in trouble, I need a car right now. You give me your car today, and in the summer, I'll give you that ranch. But you have to give me the car. You think, well, I like my car. Well, you know, it's up to you. But your car is now worthy to be compared to a ranch in Napa Valley. I have no idea what that's worth. But it's a lot of millions. Well, I don't know what your car is worth, but it's not worth a lot of millions. Your car is now worthy to be compared to this. And you'll have to wait until summer. And then I'll give you the deed. But there's more. Sounds like an infomercial. But there's more. You can move to this ranch. And also, you can bring everybody you love. Because there's plenty of room and outbuildings. Everybody that you love can move to Napa Valley. And not only that, I basically own all of Napa Valley, and so I am just going to take care of you and whatever you need for the rest of your life, and I want to show you around. I have some things I want to show you that I think you're going to like very much, but you do have to let me have your car right now. Deal? Who wouldn't take that deal? That is, that is God's program. Thank you, Lizzie. God bless you. That is God's program for your life. And the last thing you need to be doing is running around saying, oh, poor me, poor me. I had to give up my car for Jesus. Are you stark raving mad? It is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's the truth. That's Bible truth. Now, I have to confess that I do like uh, Pride and Prejudice, even though it's only for girls. In the BBC movie version, Lizzie, main character, is walking around seeing Pemberley for the very first time. You know, this is like the Napa Valley Ranch estate of Britain. But they have crummy weather, so you wouldn't want to be there. Nevertheless, she's walking around, and there's been this proposal for marriage, and she's starting to realize that she's totally misjudged Darcy. Uh, She accused him of being arrogant and having prejudice, and in fact, she has been arrogant toward him and has been prejudiced against him from the start. 
and she's realizing how wrong she was. He proposed marriage. She turned him down flatly. And she's looking at Pemberley and not only thinking about the beauty of Pemberley, which was in a, a magnificent estate, but she was also thinking about how wrong she was. And so as she's looking around, uh, seeing it for the first time, she says, to all of this, I would have been mistress. Uh, she is there with her aunt and uncle, and the housekeeper is giving them a tour of the house. And Mrs. Reynolds, the housekeeper, uh, stops in front of a picture in the house of Mr. Darcy. The uncle, Miss, Mr. Gardner, tells the housekeeper, well, if your master would marry, you might see more of him. And she says, yes, but I do not know when that will be. I do not know who is good enough for him. And Elizabeth couldn't help herself. She says, it's very much to his credit, I'm sure, that you should think, think so, that there's no one good enough for him. And she, the housekeeper says, I say no more than the truth. And what everybody will say that knows him. I have never had a crossword from him in my life. And I have known him ever since he was four years old. They go into this room that was recently redecorated by Darcy for his sister, Georgiana, because he loves his sister so much. And Elizabeth says, well, he certainly is a good brother. And the housekeeper says, and this is always the way with him. There is nothing he would not do for her. And while touring the outside, as they walk towards the river, Darcy wasn't supposed to be there, but he is there. And so they see each other, their eyes meet. And because they have such strong feelings, you know, it's, it's, it's instant love and, and drama. When they're back in the carriage after an unforgettable visit to Pemberley, the aunt and uncle say to Lizzie that he is infinitely superior to anything they had expected. That is basically what we are saying is awaiting us as children of God. We are going to be on Pemberley. And it's not just the magnificence of the sights and the sounds. We are talking about the Lord Jesus, whom we love, Jesus who died for us, saying, and you can bring everybody that you love, if they love me, and I'm just going to take care of you forever. And we're going to have some life. See, that's, that's just so wonderful. Uh, most of you who have been around me for some time have been to my funerals at one time or another. I almost always use these Bible verses for my funeral, um, and I have to use them tonight as well, or today as well, uh, because they are just what this text is about. Second um, Corinthians 12:2 has the Apostle Paul telling a personal experience about when he died. And he did indeed, evidently, die. And he went to heaven briefly and, and had an experience of heaven. So he says, I knew a man in Christ caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up into paradise and he heard unspeakable. In Greek, this is indescribable, inexpressible words. So he says, I have been there and I cannot tell you how wonderful it is. I have been there and I cannot express it. In Ephesians 3.14, Paul is praying for his Ephesian friends, friends at the church of Ephesus. He says, I bow my knees unto the Father that he would grant you to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. The feelings of love there pass anything you've experienced here. The love of Christ passes knowledge. It is unknowable. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9 has the apostle saying, I has not seen nor ear heard Neither has it even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. 
that is, it's unimaginable. It hasn't even occurred to you. It hasn't entered your heart. You don't know how good this is going to be. So when you put all those together, it is inexpressibly good. The feelings of love are unknowable in this world, even though you have known feelings of love. These feelings are much bigger. This is unknowable. And then in the third text, it is unimaginable. It hasn't even occurred to you. And that's what Paul is saying about our future. Uh, Whatever sufferings you're going through are not worthy to be compared. You're not in the same ballpark. You're not in the same universe. You don't know what you're talking about. And there's nothing we can do about that. It is beyond us. Here are some things that I have felt and things that I do know something about. So, for example, uh, I have this memory of Teresa and me shortly after we were married. We lived on her parents' property in a guest house, and we were next to the pool. And at that time, the radio was on um, a beautiful Arizona day. And Johnny Erickson put out an album in those days, and she was singing the song, I Am Willing, Lord, to Be Just Exactly What You Want Me to Be. And for whatever reason, I don't remember why, but Therese and I were hugging next to the pool, listening to the radio, and we both started singing along with the song on the radio. I am willing, Lord, to be just exactly what you want me to be. And we were dreaming together about life, and it was wonderful. It was sacred. We knew that we had cosmic significance. I have a memory of rocking my baby son to sleep one time, one quiet night. I mean, I must have done it a thousand times, but this time stands out, and I'm rocking one of my baby sons, listening to a recording of happy music, and that was a feeling of love and tranquility. It's just like, it's a great, great world, great life. I have this memory of taking Teresa to Jerome. It's a little copper mining town that's almost abandoned in Arizona. And we went on the motorcycle again, a beautiful Arizona day on the switchback roads and went up to Jerome. We had such a good time. And that's the simple pleasures of life. I have a memory about uh, setting a a little card to the church here uh, when they didn't have a pastor and there were only 10 people left. And I said, you know, here's who I am. If you're interested in me, I'm interested in you. And uh, they called me on a Sunday afternoon. And I remember that was like exciting, like breakthrough. Now we have a future in Virginia. I received a phone response one time from our banker when we were trying to downsize our house. Uh, we were going to sell the big house and get a little house and then reap a profit from that, which would change our financial trajectory for life. And it wasn't working out. It wasn't working out. And then the phone call came. And I knew that changed everything financially. There was relief and anticipation. It was a breakthrough. I remember a perfect October morning when Teresa and I were traveling across Route 66. And uh, we came to a place in Catoosa, Oklahoma called the Blue Whale. It's a pond. It just happened to be a Sunday morning and for whatever reason, nobody was there. And Teresa and I had the whole place to ourselves. It was so beautiful outside and the tranquility that was there and it was just sacred joy. And then many times we in this very room as a church have been moved to tears. Again, sacred joy while we've been worshiping together. These are all things that we love. These are things that matter to us. And these things we do know. But Paul said, 
The love of Christ passes knowledge. Someday we're going to experience this in a degree that we have not known. Paul says it's unimaginable. Now, these things we have imagined and we have experienced them. But what comes next is far beyond any of this. Paul says it's inexpressible. And yet, I have expressed these things to you. I have described them. But what comes next is indescribable, inexpressible. And that's why your sufferings cannot be compared to what's coming next. Those are our sufferings minuscule compared to eternity. Let's talk about our very broken universe being delivered from brokenness. That is, being delivered from the bondage of corruption, as Romans says it. In Romans 8 again, verse 19, this is what that sounds like. The earnest expectation of the whole creation waits for the manifestation, the unveiling of the sons of God. For the creation, the whole creation, was made subject to waste and ruin. Not willingly, because this is what God wants it all to be, waste and ruin. But because God has subjected the same universe in confidence of a radiant future. So, verse 21. The creation itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that right now, the whole creation groans and travails. So here's the important part, underlined in big letters. The creation itself shall be delivered. Do not think that the earth experiment of God is going to end with God losing. God wins in the earth experiment as he wins in everything. This portion of scripture actually is going to require you, I think, if you're going to face it with integrity, it's going to require you to believe in what we call the millennium. That's a thousand year reign of Christ in which all the world, planet earth, is made right. In uh, the Romans text, it says the creation is going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption. Look what this sounds like in other Bible verses. Amos 9.13 Behold, the days come, declares the Lord, that the plowman shall overtake the harvester and the treader of grapes, him that plants seed. There's going to be no winter. Uh, the harvester comes and says, uh, can, can you just uh, move this tractor out of the way? We've got to plant again. And you just keep the seasons rolling. We have more food than we can use around here. Ezekiel 47.10 and the fishermen shall spread forth their nets. Their fish shall be exceeding many. And by the river shall grow all trees for food, fruit trees. Neither shall the fruit of them be consumed. There's always plenty of fruit. Plenty of crops, plenty of fruit, plenty of fish. There's just plenty. In Isaiah 51.3, For the Lord shall make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of God. It's like the whole world has become Eden. In Isaiah eleven six, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the kid and the calf and the young lion all lie together and a little child shall lead them. You just imagine a little five-year-old kid out there saying, come on, come on, and the lion steps in time. So great. In verse 7, and the cow and the bear shall feed. They just eat together, no big deal. Their young ones shall lie down together. Let's take a nap. And so the bear and the cow lie down together. That's the future. It's like Eden. It's paradise. Ezekiel 36, 35, and they shall say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Ezekiel and Isaiah say almost the same thing, don't they? 
Irenaeus, who is an early church leader, he's quite early, he's before 200 A.D., and he talks about this, and I know you can't see that print, but uh, here's what he says. Remember, this is a very early church leader. He says, The predicted blessing, therefore, belongs unquestionably to the times of the kingdom when the righteous shall bear rule upon their rising from the dead. And also the creation, having been renovated and set free, shall fructify with an abundance of all kinds of food from the dew of heaven and from the fertility of the earth. We're not in heaven. We're talking about the earth, the fertility of the earth. As the elders who saw John, who wrote the book of Revelation, as the elders who saw John, the disciple of the Lord, related that they heard from him how the Lord used to teach in regard to these times and say, the days will come in which vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches. And on every one of the clusters, 10,000 grapes. In like manner, the Lord declared that a grain of wheat would produce 10,000 ears and that all other fruit-bearing trees and seeds and grass would produce in similar proportions and that all animals feeding only on the productions of the earth should in those days become peaceful and harmonious among each other and be in perfect subjection to human beings. And these things are borne witness to in writing by Papias. Papias is another very early church leader. These two things are borne witness by Papias, the hero of John, and a companion of Polycarp, who's also a very early church leader. So Irenaeus, Papias, and Polycarp, among the very earliest church leaders, say, oh yeah, there's going to be a millennium. How then could we possibly live in a time when perhaps the majority of Christians don't believe that there's going to be a millennium. What a rookie mistake. The Bible says the creation is going to be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. And although we, who are Christians today, will be in the millennial kingdom in our glorified bodies, it'll still look just as lovely to us as it does now, but maybe more so, because in those days, we won't be worried about other things. Like now, when we look at something beautiful on planet Earth, we always think, oh, but I have these other worries and concerns. Now, when we look at something beautiful, we think, yeah, but we can't stay here. We can't live here. This is just for us to see, and then we have to go back to what is a little less than this. But in the millennium, That's just how things are going to be, and it's not tainted by disappointment and worry. Now we'll say something about our very broken bodies that are going to be delivered and redeemed. The whole universe is going to be redeemed, and our very broken bodies are going to be redeemed. This is very exciting as well. So again, chapter 8, this time verse 23. And not only they, they're not the only ones who groan. Not only they... But ourselves also, we who are saved, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we're contracted for salvation forever and we have newness of Christ. These are the first fruits and the bigger harvest is coming. We also groan within ourselves. Christians groan. Christians have lots of troubles. It's not just that everybody else is groaning. We're groaning. We have it hard too. 
not only they by ourselves also have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves growing within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, the unveiling, the full harvest. We're waiting for the adoption. By that we mean the redemption of our body. Redemption means to buy, and usually to buy from something bad, like slavery. We're waiting for the day when our bodies are fixed. Verse 24, for we are saved by hope. It's all about what's coming, what's coming, what's coming. The future, a bright future. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does a man hope for what he already sees? It's about the future. But if we hope for what we do not yet see, then we with patience wait for it. We're waiting for it. We're waiting for the unveiling. You have a really important cross-reference here. See at the top, we have what we already looked at from Romans 8. We are grown, waiting for the, uh, groaning, waiting for the redemption of the body. Now, very similar to that is 2 Corinthians 5, 2. And you see the word groan again. In this we groan. Life can be hard for Christians. In this we groan. Earnestly, you know, eagerly, we really want this. Earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, our new body, which is from heaven. We need a new body. In verse 4, for we that are in this tabernacle is like a tent. Our body's like a tent, and we live in the tent. The tabernacle is a tent. For we that are in this tent do groan. Hard things come to us. Being burdened. Not that we wish to be unclothed. It's not like we don't want to have a body. But that mortality might be swallowed up of life. We want bodies that don't hurt. Bodies that don't get sick. Bodies that don't get old. Bodies that don't die. That's what we want. Humans were made to have bodies. Again, Romans 8, we're waiting for the redemption of the body. In 2 Corinthians 5, we want mortality to be swallowed up of life. We are not like Hindus and Buddhists. Hindus and Buddhists have no interest in the body. Their whole purpose is to be absorbed into the spiritual plane. They don't want to have bodies. They have no interest in bodies. We are not like that. We are also not like spiritualists. People who think that when you die, you become a ghost. and You just either have a restful state or a wandering state or a demonic state. We don't believe that. We're not going to be ghosts forever. We're not intended to be ghosts forever. For a little time, yes, but not forever. And we are not like folk Christianity advocates who speak of when our babies die, they become angels. Or they say, uh, you lost your spouse, now there's another angel in heaven. Angels don't have bodies. We are never going to be angels. We don't want to be angels. That's folk Christianity. It's nonsense. We believe that mortality is going to be swallowed up of life. We believe that our bodies are going to be redeemed. The adoption, the redemption of our human bodies. We don't know exactly why God decided to make a physical universe that's different from the universe in which he has always lived. You know, why did he decide to make this physical universe with time, space, and matter? Why did he do that? And why did he design, de- design physical human bodies for us and even physical bodies for the animals? Why did he do that? The angels don't have bodies. They don't seem to be lacking anything. Why did God decide that he make a physical universe with physical people and physical animals? Why did he do it? Well, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. But it must have 
something to do with certain pleasant feelings and experiences that come to us. He can know them because he knows everything. But for us to know them, we must have had to be in our bodies, in a physical universe. And so out of love, he did that for us. He did not do that for the angels. He did it for us. And evidently, there is something about being a physical being in this physical creation that's a blessing. That is an act of love. Something that the angels don't understand because they are not physical beings who maketh his angels spirits. They are not physical beings. You are. You have a blessing they don't have. And so, and that is not only going to be impossible for an angel to experience because he's not a physical being, but as long as you are disembodied, that is, from the time you die until the time of the resurrection when we come forth from the graves, you also will never be able to experience these things just right. The last thing you want to do is remain a ghost, a soul, a spirit forever. The Lord has given you another layer of joy and experience. Philippians 3.20 Our citizenship is in heaven, from where also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, not get rid of it, change it. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like his glorious body. Because Jesus has a body. To this very day, Jesus has a body. And we're going to get a body like his body. According to working whereby he's able even to do this. Which is extraordinary. 1 Corinthians 15, 51. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Even if you don't die and the Lord comes back and you haven't died, even then you have to have your body changed. You might not die, but you still have to change. So we're going to get glorified bodies. In a moment, the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Mortality swallowed up of life. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. See, that's, that's the future. First Thessalonians 4.15. We who are alive and remain. We don't even have to die necessarily before the Lord comes back. Maybe we'll be alive. We will not go before those who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. Their bodies come up. The adoption, the redemption of the body. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. And we rise, changed, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 15. John 5 has Jesus saying, the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves. By the way, this is true even of the lost people, the unsaved people. All that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of light and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Everybody gets resurrected. Some get resurrected to life. Some get resurrected to condemnation. But what we see here is resurrection of life. Your body is changed. It is the redemption of the body. Your body is fixed. It's remedied. And there is healing in the atonement. Sometimes people who are interested in faith healing say, don't you understand there's healing in the atonement? And you should say, oh, we do indeed understand that there's healing in the atonement, but not until the adoption, the redemption of our body. But there's definitely healing in the atonement, right? Isaiah 53, 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, his whip marks, 
we are healed, just not until the adoption, the redemption of the body. In 1 Peter 2.24, it's the same thing, but notice the difference in person and the difference in tense. Christ bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Oh, yeah, there's definitely healing in the redemption. You were healed. We are healed. Are and were healed. There's definitely healing in the redemption. But it's not until the adoption, the redemption of the body. And that's coming very soon. Whoever can fix this problem, this is the big problem in humanity right here. Whoever can fix this problem deserves your unending love and lifelong loyalty. And we have a Savior who can fix this problem. He can fix even the brokenness of our bodies. We're going to go from this bad, the loss of loved ones, bodies swallowed up by the grave. We're going to go from this to fixed, loveliness, everything made right. So it would be like the Lord has this big gathering in heaven someday. Uh, You're there. And maybe there's going to be an announcement that sounds something like this. Uh, All creatures in the universe, all angel creatures, good and evil, and even all of the animals. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, now we present the unveiling, the adoption, the redemption. That's it. That's coming soon. God has a wonderful remedy for all the sufferings of this physical universe. He sure does. All will be well in nature someday. We call that the millennium. All will be well in nature. And all will be well with your own physical body. That will be so great. And all the unpleasantness and the sufferings you have right now as a believer are minuscule compared to what's coming just around the corner. Can we stand and be dismissed with prayer? Father God, sometimes we get aggravated because of our suffering. We fixate and obsess over the thing that we're going through that's unpleasant. And we forget what's coming just around the corner. If anybody today has been lost in grief, has been lost in despair, because they haven't understood, because they haven't seen, I pray that today they would see that hope and with patience now wait for it. And we pray for it in Jesus' name. Amen.